Good morning. Enjoy singing together as saints to the Lord and worshiping together. It's a it's just a joy to do that every Sunday morning as we come together and do that. Well, if you've been married for any amount of time, you know that communication is no problem whatsoever. There's never any misunderstandings at all. We've all experienced times of misunderstanding, whether married or not. Just this past week, Elise and I were talking and stumbled across a the realization that for the past 14 years we have misunderstood each other on a, not a major issue, but it's one that continually reoccurred. Uh, Faults all mine, obviously. She would often ask, you know, at uh, the end of the day, is there, is there something you'd like to eat? And I was, I would uh, take that the wrong way. Here in my mind it was, I don't have any plans, I need your help to figure out what we're going to eat. So I would frantically think, okay, I've got to set things aside. I've got to go help her figure it out. All along, all she wanted to do was bless me and see, did I have any preferences? I, uh, we were chuckling about it. I'm still amazed at my obtuseness on it. But in our text this morning that we're going to look at, we're going to come across a misunderstanding that's much more significant, much greater than what's for dinner. It's a misunderstanding about the Messiah, It's a misunderstanding of who Christ is. It's the reason Jesus told his disciples, do not tell anyone that I am the Christ. After that wonderful declaration and assurance that was given is Peter was divinely inspired and given insight into that proclamation, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. If you would, pray with me as we look into this misunderstanding this morning and as we look at the implications it has for our life today. Father, we come before you this morning grateful for the gift that has been given through the, through the cross, through the mercy, the salvation that is offered. Father, we sung about that this morning. We've acknowledged, recognized, proclaimed your goodness, your graciousness, your mercifulness, your loving kindness that pursues us, that seeks us. Father, you are truly a patient and gracious God, one who is abounding in loving kindness, slow to anger, gracious and compassionate, wishing that none would perish. Father, as we look at this important text this morning, important because it begins to reveal to us in clearer and clearer ways who Jesus Christ is, I pray that we would have understanding, that we would not come to a misunderstanding. That as the eyes of the disciples were beginning to be opened that day, as the reality of who you were was unveiled or are, it was unveiled bit by bit, that we would have that same unveiling, that where we have misunderstood, where we do not today understand you rightly, that you would help us to correct that. Because, Father, so much is at stake, as we will be reminded of this morning. Pray these things in your name. Amen. If you haven't already opened up your Bibles, you can do so to Matthew chapter 16, where we pick back up in our study of the Gospel of Matthew. We concluded last week at the end of verse 20, this transitionary passage, transitionary because we've reached the logical midpoint in Jesus' ministry. The proclamation of the King and His coming kingdom Now it's the unveiling of who and what it means that he is the Messiah. 
Read along with me, if you would, verses 21 through the end of the chapter. From that time, that is, after having declared that he was the Christ, but do not tell anyone. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. We noted last week, we've already noted this morning and coming to this passage that here at the end of chapter 16 that we've reached this midpoint in his ministry. It was marked first by what has been in 16 chapters, probably somewhere around a year and a half or so of ministry, perhaps a little bit more, where Jesus was proclaiming repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But we ended last week with the proclamation, the declaration that this is the Messiah with that rather odd statement, tell no one. Why tell no one that the Messiah was here, though? I mean, the natural response is, why? Why in the world would we stop and not go and tell everyone that the Christ is here? This is what we've been waiting for. This is what we've been looking for. If you are a Jew, there is nothing you have been looking for to more than the Messiah being here. So why would you not tell them he has arrived? It's perplexing. Well, last week we briefly alluded to the fact and said that the reason lies, at least in part, if not almost entirely, in this misunderstanding. Specifically, the misunderstanding and confusion that people had regarding the Messiah. You see, they had the wrong expectation. Had a wrong understanding of what the Messiah would bring. This morning we see how pervasive this wrong thinking about Jesus was. Even amongst those closest to Jesus, the very disciples who had been with him day in and day out for, year, for months, over a year. And verse 21 also gives us another clue into this transition in Jesus' ministry here and the midpoint, if you will. Verse 21 opens with, from that time. It may seem just like a routine phrase or expression until you remember all the way back in chapter 4, verse 17. There as Jesus begins his earthly ministry, as he begins his public ministry, it says, from that time he began to preach that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so now we reach the second from that time, marking that transition. Again, just a 
Subtle little clue in the language here of this verse that this is a transition. It marks the beginning of, a, of another phase of Jesus' earthly ministry. But think with me, if you will, how different these messages would have felt. Now, they're not really that different. We know that. We've seen the rest of the story. But for these disciples, put yourself in those dusty sandals. How different would this message have appeared? They were told there was a king. They were told there was a kingdom. What would your expectation be if you were closest to the coming king and his kingdom? Well, he's getting ready to go into Jerusalem. He's going to set up his throne. I get to rule. I get to reign with him. There's power. There's authority. There's prestige. Yet in verse 21 of chapter 16, you can imagine the shock on the disciples' faces. They've been traveling with Jesus. They've observed these miracles. They've observed the power of the kingdom. They've just had it confirmed. This is the Messiah. If there was any doubt left, put to rest. This is the Messiah. Which meant he was the Savior and King. And yet he appears to immediately contradict everything he's been saying. He would go to Jerusalem all right, but not to be crowned as king, but to suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes. He would be killed before being raised the third day. It almost seems like that raise on the third day was initially lost on the disciples. All they heard was he's going to suffer and die. And they tuned out everything else after that point. Peter's response to Jesus' words in verse 22 illustrate how unexpected this teaching concerning the Messiah, the Christ, was. You see, there was no room in the current messianic expectation, the expectation of the Christ who is to come. There was no room in this expectation for suffering and dying. That didn't exist. And yet I believe this is precisely why Jesus told the disciples, tell no one that he was the Christ, because their expectation was so wrong. Because they did not yet understand what it really meant that he was the Christ, what the Old Testament prophets meant when they spoke of the Christ. You see, for decades, if not centuries, Jewish leaders in general had been teaching that all of those suffering servant passages that we're so familiar with, Isaiah 53, Psalm 16, Psalm 22... Psalm 31, Psalm 41, Psalm 69, all of these pertain not to the Messiah, but to the nation of Israel. And so it was the nation of Israel that has been suffering, been languishing, that would now see its victory. So this expectation Jesus gives here in verse 21 is completely different from any understanding the disciples had grown up with, with any understanding that anyone in Israel had grown up with. Peter had just affirmed Christ's Messiahship in 1618. He had been praised for this insight. Insight, we might note, came from the Father. It was divinely inspired. Well, it may have gotten to Peter's head a bit. Feeling confident from that interaction, perhaps just minutes, if not hours earlier, he decides to have a go at it again takes Jesus to the side 
You can almost imagine the, the shock kind of settling in, and Peter's like, I got this, guys, just a moment. So Jesus, come with me. We need to go step aside. So I begin to walk to the side. I, I still think it was within earshot of the disciples because of what follows here, but they're walking, and, and Peter doesn't get far into it, and he, what does the text say? Rebukes Jesus. He rebukes him. Now, Peter's first clue that he was wrong should have been in the fact that he was correcting the one he had just proclaimed to be the Messiah. I mean, who does he think he is? What gall? And yet we do the same thing, don't we? We tell God things shouldn't be this way. We presume to know better than God. Surely this was a mistake. We somehow presume to know how the world should operate and what would be better. Now, we don't say it like that. We're too sophisticated. We know that doesn't sound right. It doesn't sound pleasant to the ears. So we grumble and complain. We couch it in pleasant-sounding terms. But all the while expressing our displeasure, our discontent with the way God has orchestrated this world, the way he's orchestrated our lives, the events, the circumstances, the trials, the tribulations he brings to us. You see, we're Peter. All too often. As they were walking, they were probably side by side as Peter rebuked Jesus. And you can almost picture it as they're stepping, as those light dust clouds are arising at their feet, as they're stepping along. Again, with the near shot of the disciples, Mount Hermon standing above them with its snow-capped peaks. Peter finishes that one line of rebuke and Jesus just stops. I think if there were any birds around and any sound, every sound would have stopped at that moment. And Jesus turns to face him. And he says one of the harshest rebukes in all of Scripture. And interestingly, for as harsh as his rebukes are of the religious leaders, he doesn't call them Satan. And what does he say to Peter? That but there in verse 23 is rather strong. You can almost insert a brace yourselves. Get behind me, Satan. How dangerous it is to contradict the word of God. Here Peter learns firsthand that to contradict God's word is to put oneself in league with Satan. He has become an instrument of Satan in attempting to thwart God's eternal plan. With these words, Peter, though not as his whole life characterized by it, at this moment he is characterized as a false teacher. This is why we see some of that same strong language levied against false teachers throughout the New Testament. Because here, Peter directly contradicts the revealed word of God from the lips of God. This little rock, Petros, has now become a stumbling block. Now, Jesus is not saying that Peter has become possessed by Satan. Rather, this is a rather forceful and rather direct way of saying, who needs Satan when you have friends like Peter around? Or at least when you say things like this, Peter, you're doing the devil's work. He can go take a vacation. You're saving him the trouble. Fascinatingly, this rebuke 
was issued to Satan, almost verbatim, get behind me, Satan. You may recall in Matthew 4, just before the beginning of his public ministry and the temptation that took place, get behind me, Satan. And it's the same today when we oppose or contradict what God has clearly spoken and commanded in his word. Peter was reasoning, you see, from man's perspective, where glory, honor, power were all that the Messiah needed. He made no room for suffering, servanthood, and death. Peter, this rock, had become that stumbling block in the path of accomplishing God's will. And, and notice here, Jesus as he describes this, gives us two categories and only two categories from which to view this. He really breaks the world down into its simplest levels. You have on the one hand the things of man, you have on the other hand the things of God. You see, there is no neutral ground in this world. There is but the will of Satan and the will of God. And you fall on one side or the other with every action that you take, with every thought that you make. Every word you speak aligns itself with God or with Satan, with the will of God or against him. Have you ever stopped to consider that? I would reason that if you're like me, you don't do it far often enough. I think if we did, we would find that we would guard the things we say, guard the thoughts we have, guard the things we do with much more care, perhaps being much slower to speak. The things of man have just been identified as being in league with Satan. And what are man's interests? Put simply, they're anything that obscures our view of God. Anything that obscures your view of God. That distracts us from our worship of him. For some, it's going to be money and the accumulation of wealth. But that's not everyone. For others, it's authority, it's prestige, it's power, it's how people think about them. They are consumed with how people perceive them. Sometimes it's power, sometimes it's just social popularity. Social media feeds this to a dangerous level. So others lose focus on God and his purposes because of their love of leisure and entertainment. Some allow their love of family or friends to justify the pull it has away from God and what he desires of them. There's so many things that rightly fit this category. And there are other things, other important things to notice here. There's some things that are instructional, perhaps a, a larger level, at a macro level, just in discipleship in general. Look here at what Jesus says or what Matthew records Jesus is doing in verse 21. Jesus began to show his disciples. I actually take great comfort in that little phrase. Do you know why? Because they didn't get it all at once. There wasn't instant understanding. There wasn't instant unveiling of everything. Especially where it pertained to his suffering and theirs, it took a great deal of time, it took a great deal of teaching for them to come to grips with what this all meant and the implication it had for their lives. And so he began to teach. This is what we talk about. We talk about progressive sanctification. It is not instant sanctification. I know we all wish that was the case. It's not. 
This is important for us because we need to be patient with persons. If it took the apostles months of one-on-one understanding from Jesus or teaching from Jesus to begin to understand, then why do we expect one to instantly understand and internalize things ourselves and expect instant change in our lives? Not that we shouldn't strive for obedience. But secondly, to look for instant response and obedience from others. I think we get far too frustrated with others when we don't see instant obedience, instant change. There should certainly be a marked change. We should strive with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength to love the Lord, to please the Lord. But there's times we need to step back and remember the reality of the situation. It took the disciples months of one-on-one time with Jesus to even begin to comprehend. Lack of immediate and full understanding in ourselves or in other persons is not always a sign of unbelief. It can be, but it's not always. It may just be a sign that faith needs to grow. Think about these disciples. How often have we seen Jesus say, oh, you of little faith, not no faith, but of little faith. And they grow step by step as they walk with Christ. We must certainly understand some things, but we're not expected to understand everything. And secondly, notice that their expectations, their religious upbringing, this is really what's going on here, their their religious upbringing had so influenced their understanding that they needed a recalibration of what Christ, what Messiah meant. And that also may be true of some of us here this morning. And maybe it's not even the term Christ itself, but It's very easy growing up in church and a religious upbringing to begin to assume something is correct just because you've heard it many times. Or because it's become the cultural expectation. But have you taken the time to study it for yourself? Have you really thought about some of the things we say and do? Perhaps one of the easiest examples is you you hear someone pray, Lord, we thank you that where two or three are gathered in your name, there you are in our midst. Well, now that is a true statement. But the only place that statement applies or is, is applied in Scripture and occurs in Scripture is in a passage on church discipline, where discipline of the Lord is brought to bear where two or three are gathered. Now, it's not an untrue statement that where two or three are gathered, Jesus is there. He's also there if you're praying in your closet by yourself. There's probably so many other just things that our religious upbringing have ingrained into us that we need to stop and make sure we're running through the grid of Scripture as we grow and are sanctified step by step. Well, I wonder how long Peter stayed quiet after this rebuke. Was it minutes? Was it hours? Was it days? I think I would have had trouble speaking for a few days after that rebuke. I tend to think, like I've already said, that this whole conversation occurred within earshot of the disciples because of what Jesus says next in verse 24. It makes sense in light of them having heard what took place. In light of Peter's inability to understand, and he's likely expressing the inability of the other disciples, he was just bold enough to say what they were all thinking, to understand what it meant that Jesus was the Messiah and what that meant for them as disciples, as followers of the Messiah. Then it goes on to verse 24. In other words, not only will the Messiah suffer, but so will his followers. 
Again, a far cry from their expectation, what was likely their expectation of ruling and reigning with Christ. In fact, just a few chapters later, a couple chapters later, we find them still arguing over who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. They've forgotten this whole statement. But instead of a throne, they are being offered a cross, at least on this earth and in this life. Now, I will say this. You have to give it to the disciples a little bit, or at least a little bit of credit, for not running at this point and running back to their homes. They've just had their expectations turned on their head. Now, they haven't sunk in far enough yet, but their expectations have been turned on their head. Instead of ruling and reigning, they're now going to suffer and carry a cross, and they didn't run away. So they stayed and they continued to learn. The cross doesn't mean to us what it means or probably meant to their ears at that time. Christ hadn't died on the cross, so it certainly didn't have all of its implications. The cross was a well-known symbol in the first century Roman world where criminals as well as rebels or those creating malcontent were hung. You've heard it described, but it was a slow, it was an agonizing, it was a painful death. Persons could live for days on there in just absolute agony. And it wasn't uncommon to see the condemned criminal carrying his cross, or at least the cross beam, to his place of execution. And here we see that this carrying of the cross beam, metaphorically and figurative language, is now being applied to all the disciples of Jesus Christ which makes this passage particularly important for you and for me if we claim to be disciples. Jesus ties this language in with that phrase, to deny oneself. This is one of those verses, those passages, that probably doesn't need too much help in application. There's probably no limit to the meaning of this term or at least to the implications from this term and this phrase. It's quite simply, everything that we would do for ourselves must be put to death. However, based on the context, we can comment on at least a few ways we might see this implemented in our lives and the lives of those around us. First, and really a further elaboration on what we've already discussed, is Peter's failure. The tendency to think and insist that God's ways of dealing with the world and its evil should conform to our way of dealing with the world and its evil. And so to deny oneself means that we do not assume, we lay aside those expectations or believe that God's way of working in the world must conform to our expectations or how we would define success or glory and put those to death. The second the way we might apply this and see its implication deals with our everyday life. And again, there's, there is a danger here of getting too specific in the application because there's so much and there's so much that could be said. Because a verse like this lends itself to very specific application. We'll settle for a few examples. These are by no means the limits of the application or the implication of these verses, of this verse. But to take up one's cross, again, is in essence to consider oneself as dead or as good as dead. The thief who was carrying the crossbeam had no hope. Now we have hope. It's very different in that regard. Metaphors are only to be pressed so far. But he was as good as dead. He no longer had rights. He no longer had expectations. It was as good as dead. For those carrying the cross, their life was forfeit. They were on borrowed time with just hours left 
to live, maybe a couple of days, and most of those in agony. And that's a picture Jesus is drawing. Take up your cross. Consider yourself as dead. Prepare for agony. Prepare for suffering. There's a very literal application of this passage for those facing persecution and violence for their belief in Jesus Christ. It's often missed by the mainstream media, but there are hundreds of Christians murdered each week, sometimes each day, many of these in African countries where radical Muslim groups hunt down converts to Christianity, Christianity or eradicate entire Christian villages. It's going on widespread right now. It's also happening in China. It's happening in North Korea where there's supposedly been a renewed effort in the past few months to find and imprison or kill every Christian they can. And the passage certainly applies to those situations, but it doesn't only apply to those situations. Paul helps us understand that. You can turn there if you'd like to Romans chapter 6, verse 11, where he helps us to understand what it means to carry our cross. Considering oneself as dead or as good as dead, but he lets us know what it is that we are dead to. And this is so important because this is where it differs from perhaps what may have first run through the minds of those disciples or someone thinking of carrying a cross. Paul writes in Romans 6, verse 11, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. In other words, dead to your own expectations, dead to your own desires. Instead, alive with regard to doing what God desires. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, your members as instruments of righteousness to God. To deny oneself is to return to the Sermon on the Mount and pray, your will be done. It's to follow the pattern of Christ in the garden where he prayed, not yet not my will, but yours be done. So this is an appropriate place to ask, how are you doing in this area? In fact, stop for a moment and just think. Perhaps you want to write this down. What area of your life are you struggling to submit to God? What area of your life are you unwilling to put to death? What area of your life are you unwilling to carry the cross? Or instead you cling to it. You have an expectation that you deserve this. You should have this. It should go this way. Why is this so important? Because the stakes could not be any higher. We see this in the following verses, verses 25 through 27. Where we see to that beginning to gain the whole world. Well, you realize this is what Satan offered Jesus in that temptation in Matthew 4. He took him to the highest pinnacle and offered him the world and its kingdoms. This was the goal of Alexander the Great and every other great emperor, king, tyrant, and ruler. And if not the whole world, then at least some small corner of it to rule it and reign it. That's the negative view. That's what probably jumps to our mind first when we think of this phrase. But this language may sound familiar for another reason. It's the language of the creation mandate. 
to fill the world and subdue it, to have dominion over it, to reign over it. And this mandate was reiterated to Noah after the fall, so it didn't cease because of sin. Sin has perverted our attempts, it's perverted our understandings of what it means to fill, to fill the er, er, world, to subdue it, to reign over it, to have dominion over it. But notice here that Jesus is not just comparing a selfish desire or a sinful desire that can certainly come to play, but no, what Jesus is saying is, what does it matter if you fulfill the entirety of the creation mandate but lose your soul? What does it matter if you've made the entire earth into a kingdom if you have not gained entrance into the kingdom of God? So verses 25 through 27 highlight what is at stake in this call to discipleship. Put simply, eternity, safety from God's wrath, being a citizen of God's kingdom. The great paradox, the great contradiction or seeming contradiction of the Christian life is that the way up is the way down. You've heard that phrase. That we are to live this life in light of the life to come. And it involves humbling ourselves, putting to death our desires. To lay down my expectations, my cravings, to continually pray, your will be done, and then do it. And yet, like Esau, who traded his birthright for a bowl of soup, people are willing to exchange eternity for the passing pleasure of this world. Because of this, verse 27 provides added motivation. And that added motivation is that Jesus is coming. You better be ready. And he's coming again. We can infer again because Jesus talks here of the Son of Man who is going to come. He's talking here in the future. He's already standing there with them. He's called himself the Son of Man. So this must be a future reference to a future coming and he will come again. Only this time it's going to look very different. And here's where the disciples begin to understand, okay, so we had it mostly wrong but not all wrong. Because he will come again. And he will come with authority. He will come with power. He will come in judgment. He will come, as it says, to repay every person according to their deeds. Paul again in Romans, and you can turn to Romans 2. He elaborates on what this means in Romans chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Because this rendering of each person according to their deeds is not only negative, it's good and bad. Beginning of verse 5, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. This is the coming of the Lord. Who will render to each person according to his deeds. We read that in Psalm 62 this morning as well at the very end. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious... Do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. There is wrath and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man. That is every individual person who does evil. Of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But, that's a big but. Glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. After these solemn words, a heightening of the stakes, if you will. Here's what's at stake. Eternity. Eternity of where you will spend heaven, 
where, where you will spend eternity. Will you be in heaven in the presence of God in the new heavens and the new earth? In the life to come, or will you be forever separated in torment and agony in hell? After those solemn words, Jesus adds an encouraging note in verse 28, and yet it's a strange verse and a strange way to kind of end this section. It's one that poses a good deal of difficulty in its interpretation, so we'll return to it next week. Though the implications are I'm going to say relatively minor to our doctrine or theology. It is important, just not at the level of the deity of Christ or some of other first order doctrine. We'll return there, though, as we look at it. But verse 28 really stands as a transition between the promise of the coming judgment of the Son of Man, where both reward and punishment are found, and what we'll see next week as it prepares us for the Mount of Transfiguration, where we get a glimpse of that glory of God as it falls upon Christ and he's transfigured before Peter, James, and John. But before we conclude, I can't help but think about these verses, read these verses, read the heightening of what's at stake, and consider its message and wonder, do we rightly think about Jesus today? C.S. Lewis has the somewhat well-known Lord, liar, or lunatic. You can choose one, but you can't have them all. Either he's Lord and sovereign and everything who he said he was, or he's a liar, knowing what he was doing, or he was just a crazy man. I think much of the world struggles with its understanding of who Christ is. First and most importantly for anyone in this room, do you understand that Jesus is the judge and ruler, the one who will one day return to judge this world for all its sin? And do you recognize that you are a sinner and that your sin is active rebellion against God? And the only hope you have for forgiveness to avoid the recompense that is the fires of hell is to cry out to God for mercy. But as we've so many times been reminded, even in our singing this morning, there is none that God will turn away. He is gracious and merciful, wishing that none would perish. But there are so many in this world who have misunderstood who Jesus is. I think he's simply a teacher or a moral philosopher or just a made-up story. And that misunderstanding, if not corrected, will be their undoing. Or if you've not repented, your undoing. But there's another group of people who misunderstand. And they don't necessarily misunderstand that Jesus will come again. They haven't misunderstood that he is the Messiah, but they misunderstand what discipleship, what following Jesus really means and really looks like. For them, perhaps for us, following Jesus looks more like a weekend hobby. Occasional church attendance to encourage and exhort fellow believers and learn together from Scripture. Occasional Bible study, occasional prayer, occasional evangelism, occasional service and service of one another, occasional practice of spiritual disciplines. Now every believer has experienced the temptation to be less than fully committed to the call of discipleship. I'd be lying if I said that I can perfectly carry the cross. I don't. But that doesn't mean that I'm okay with it. 
It means that we strive to do the hard work of carrying the cross. Any, all of us would like a day, a week. At least there's a part of us that would like a day off, would like a week off. It's hard. It is hard being a Christian in this world. There's a joy to it, but it's hard. Be nice to not be attacked. It, be nice to not feel like I'm fighting against every fiber of my being and just give in for a day, a week, a month. But that's why we're reminded of how great the stakes are. That's why we come together is to encourage one another. So much more as we see that day approaching that day where the stakes come to bear. So what do we do with this temptation when it arises? How does it arise? Why does it arise? Why does it feel stronger at times than others? Well, it's when we stop spending time with the Savior. It arises when we forget what is at stake. Again, this is why I believe we are giving glimpses into the future coming of Christ. This is why we're given books like Revelation and teaching from books like Daniel. It's not to argue about eschatological systems, as there's times and, and times that are necessary to define them, but it's not to argue through those. No, we were given these things to be encouraged, to be excited that Christ is coming again. And he's coming soon. We can battle this Temptation to lay down our cross by remembering that what Christ has done, reminding each other of what Christ has done, and reminding each other of what Christ is coming to do. So the reminder this morning, the exhortation this morning is no more than the words of Christ to his disciples. That if anyone desires to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, if anyone calls themselves a follower of Jesus Christ, you must deny yourself and take up the cross and follow him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the teaching this morning. We thank you for the clarification of what it means to, one, be a disciple, and two, what it meant that the Messiah would come and die. Father, there's so much more we have to learn about the subject that you began to unfold and teach to your disciples. Father, help us to faithfully apply these things. Help us to faithfully work at taking up our cross, at doing the hard work of denying ourselves, of putting to death our expectations, our desires, and living in light of eternity. In your name, amen.